0: Good morning, Cornerstone. Good morning. You guys heard me the first time. Yes. We begin our study today in the series on the book of Romans. The book of Romans. And as I get started here, let me just say that I have never preached a series on the book of Romans ever book of Romans in my personal life has been one of those books that I have gone to time and time again when I needed encouragement, when I needed a more clear understanding of God's love for me and of his grace. It has been a very personal book for me for the majority of my Christian life starting at the age of 13, but I never preached series on the book of Romans because quite frankly I can say this the book of Romans is one of the most intimidating books of the Bible to me it is so theologically thick the concepts and ideas are so heavy with the glory of God that I have felt in the past that the preach of the book of Romans is almost like sacrilege. What it says, it says so well and so clearly what could possibly be added to it. Nothing can be added to the book of Romans. In fact, if I was stranded on a desert island all by myself and I could only have one book, it would be the book of Matthew, my favorite gospel. But if I could have two books, my second book would no doubt be the book of Romans. I love the book of Romans it's possibly the second most important and influential book in all of the Bible it is spiritually deep theologically rich exhaustively informative and thoroughly expository the book of Romans it's the kind of book that you can't just rush through or approach with your presuppositions It is a book that must be approached with humility and an open heart. With loose or loosened theological positions. With a willingness to entertain the recasting of the gospel message because quite frankly, the book of Romans will blow your spiritual mind when you really understand all that Paul is saying to us. And when we approach the book of Romans in this way, We can be sure that this book will rock our worlds, will excite us, will intimidate us, will make us more thankful for the riches and the grace and the love of God. Hopefully it will make us more free. This book of Romans has been the catalyst for nearly every Christian reformation and revival that the world has ever seen. It has marked the turning points of many of the greatest men of God and most effective ministers from Martin Luther to Origen to John Wesley to my favorite, R.C. Sproul. The Book of Romans is a rhetorical masterpiece, spiritual gem, and if we allow it, this book can lead each of us closer to the harbor of the grace of our God. This book can give rest to our weary souls as we celebrate the truth of the freedom and the liberty that we have inherited in Christ Jesus our Lord. And as as we allow the Jews of Romans to embrace, we'll begin to serve Jesus Christ out of a sense, not out of a sense of duty, but more out of a sense of love and of honor to his name. And this is how Paul the Apostle explains his own service to God in chapter 1, verse 1, when he says, Paul, a bond servant of Jesus Christ. The word there should just say slave, because that's what the word is. It is a bond slave of Jesus Christ. But it's not just any kind of slave, it is a slave who has agreed of their own will and volition to serve Jesus. In the Old Testament there is guidance regarding the slave, the person who owes a debt that he cannot pay, his creditor becomes his master and he has to work off his debt to his master. Sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes the slave after serving off the debt would have fallen in love with his master and when it's time for him to leave, he says, no, I would like to be your slave of my own will and volition. This is what Paul is saying. Paul, I am a slave of Jesus Christ by my own will by my own volition. And after submitting his whole life to Jesus Christ, he is called then to be an apostle, called as an apostle, a sent one. His submission to Jesus Christ, his willing submission to Jesus Christ, to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, preceded his calling. After he submitted his life to Jesus, then he was called to be an apostle. A bond servant called to be an apostle, and one who is set apart. The Greek word here contains within the word horizo. We get our word horizon from this word. Set apart. It literally means to be rehorizoned, to be resituated, to be repositioned, to be re. Horizon. If you can imagine what that looks like, before Paul was saved, Paul was in the Judaic religion. He was on that horizon. He could see around him only to somewhat of a distance. He couldn't see the whole story. Only, only the story from the book of Exodus on further. His mindset was small. He was hemmed in by his theology. After coming to Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ rehorizoned him. What does that mean? It means that Jesus took him from here where he could only see a little bit, and he put him all the way up here so that he could see all around Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. Set apart, re-horizoned. Permitted by God to have a bigger picture of his will. Permitted by God to see the big picture. Set apart. Set firm in a higher place from which God has allowed me to have a better view of his will. Hmm. Set apart. Re- Horizon. We re it. This is Paul's desire for the saints at Rome. That they would be re And as we go through the book of Romans, I, my prayer for you all is that you will be re That God will take you up a little higher so that you can more clearly see the picture of the grace and of the love of God, so that you can see more clearly God's vision for your life, for the world. Rehorizon. Taken out of your smaller place and put into a larger place. Rehorizon. That the territory of your faith might be enlarged. so that you can more clearly see the depth of the wisdom and of the knowledge of our God. Set apart, Paul says. I believe this is Paul's desire for the church at Rome. I take this from the book of Romans chapter 12 and verse two. If you have a Bible, turn there. Romans chapter 12 and verse two because this is what I believe is the purpose of Paul writing this book. He says to them in Romans chapter 12 verse two, he says, Do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to this horizon. Do not take on this world's mindset. Do not be conformed to this world. But be. And the word there be literally means let yourself be. Transformed. Do not be conformed to this world but allow yourself to be transformed you can't transform yourself but allow yourself by the Holy Spirit to be changed let yourself be changed this transformation that Paul is talking about here is not a change that occurs first on the outside but it is a radical reorientation it is a radical rehorizoning that begins in the heart. Allow yourself to be changed. How are we gonna do this, Paul? You're gonna do this by allowing your mind to be made new. By the renewal of your mind. By being re-horizoned. By taking off the blinders of this world by saying yes to Jesus Christ and allowing him to bring you higher and closer so that you can see the bigger picture of what God has in store for you and for the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can prove. <laughs> prove. This word for prove in the Greek literally means to try to learn the genuineness of something by examining and by testing so that you can learn the genuineness of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ by examination and by testing. What am I going to learn when I do this? If this is your purpose, Paul, what am I going to learn when I do this examination? Paul invites us throughout the book of Romans to examine what the will of God is. I think that's the purpose of the whole book. So that we might learn Daniel. Not so that we can learn Daniel. But so that we can learn what the will of God is. So that we can live in tune with the will of God. Now, we all know that to understand the will of God is never easy. It is difficult to understand the will of God. Because God's will is not just a set of rules and regulations. God's will is more complex than this. But we are to seek to know God's will as our first objective in the kingdom of God. The first thing we need to understand is the will of God. What Paul will clearly demonstrate to us as we delve deeper into the book of Romans is that there are stages, stay with me, there are stages or there are levels to the will of God. I just lost half of you with that statement. There are stages, there are levels to the will of God. That God's will for mankind, as laid out from Genesis to Revelation, consists in a manifestation of three phases. Paul says there is the good will of God. There is the acceptable will of God. And there is the perfect will of God. There is the good will of God so that you might come to understand what is God's goodwill. What does that mean in the Greek? In the Greek, good simply means to be satisfactory, so that you may learn what is satisfactory to God. The goodwill of God. This would apply to those who lived before the law was given to Moses. The goodwill of God. Before there was the law, people didn't know the difference between good and evil. And even though they didn't understand the difference between good and evil, there were some people who still had an innate sense of what was right and what was wrong. Paul will later call them in the book of Romans, he'll call them those who have the law within themselves. They become a law unto themselves. That's good. Their lifestyle was satisfactory to God. It wasn't the best way to live. They weren't necessarily doing what was right in order to please God, but still they knew and they followed what was right. We have people like that in our world today, don't we? There are some good people in the world who are not saved. They're accomplishing the good will of God. It's not the perfect will, but it's the good will of God. God desires that we not fight amongst ourselves. God desires that we all live in harmony whether we're saved or not. God desires that we be good people, right? Whether Christian or not Christian, doesn't matter. God recognizes good people whether they're saved or not. We all believe that. We all understand that, right? There was an unbeliever in the book of Acts who gave money to the temple to build the temple of God, and God recognized that man by name, and he's not even a Christian. God recognizes the good work of any people. There is a good will of God. (laughs) It's not the perfect will, but it's the good will of God to treat people fairly, to care for widows and orphans, to be kind to those who are in need, to be philanthropic in our giving. This is all God's goodwill. But this good lifestyle is not enough to make one worthy of eternal life. And as we'll learn from Paul as we study this book, the good Christian has nothing to boast about. The good Christian is not guaranteed eternal life just because they're good. Because eternal life is not something that can be earned. Eternal life is a free gift from God through Jesus Christ alone. Anyone who inherits eternal life will not inherit eternal life because they do the good will of God. But it's important that we know that God has a good will. And if men, whether saved or unsaved, if men will accomplish the good will of God, then the world will be a much better, a much more wholesome place to live. If men and women would just uh, acknowledge and follow the good will of God, all men could thrive in the world just by practicing being good. And such practice would give God a general sense of satisfaction. As God desires that human beings live together in harmony, he would be somewhat satisfied by it. It's not his greatest goal, it's not his highest aim, but it is satisfactory, it is good. Then Paul says that we should understand the acceptable will of God. That we should understand the things that God considers to be even more satisfactory. And who is this? This would pertain to those who kept the law as it was given to Moses. From Exodus all the way to the book of Matthew, we learn about these people who kept the law of God as best they could. And the main difference between those who kept the law and those who followed the law by their own conscience conscience, is that the one who kept the law of Moses did so out of a consciousness of God. That's better. There are atheists who give millions of dollars every year to people in Africa. That's good, but they don't believe in God. Then there's the person who gives to people in Africa because he thinks God would have him do this. This is a good thing to do. I believe God, that's satisfactory. That's acceptable. That's a little better than just good because you at least have a knowledge or a consciousness of God. And you're conscious of God and that's the reason why you're doing what, that's good. That's even better than good. That's satisfactory. But that's still not good enough. Those who followed the law of Moses were acceptable to God for a season. But as Paul is going to explain to us later in this book, no one will be saved by obeying the law. The law does not save. The law does not save. And in this book of Romans, Paul will explain to us, Paul will teach us what the purpose of the law truly is. For a season, this, this obedience to the law was acceptable to God. It's more satisfactory than just being good. It is a consciousness toward God. That's a good thing. This kind of living is better than just good, but it's still incomplete. This is the final layer of the will of God. You have, you have God's good will. You have those things that are acceptable to God. But then Paul says, I want you to come to know the perfect will of God. The word here for perfect means to be fully grown, And complete that you might know the fully grown will of God, that you might know the complete will of God. If you consider the horizons I've been talking about, you have the person on one horizon that 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 just sees the good will of God. I just do good not because of God. I don't even believe in God. I just do what's good because it's nice to be. Now I'm a humanist. Is what I am. I just do do good for people because I love people, and that's good. That's a small horizon. And that person looks out and doesn't see much, Just I'm just doing good for the sake of doing good. That's all it's about, is just being nice in this world, being a good human. They have that, that saying, now be a good human. For what? For what reason? No reason, just to make yourself feel good about yourself and to help other people. That's a nice thing to do. Yeah, okay, that's, that's a small horizon. Then you have the Jews who were on a higher plateau. They could see a little further. God has rules. God is holy, and God requires that we be holy. God desires that we do right and if we're not doing right, God is going to reject us. That's true in a sense. And so they tried to follow, that, that was satisfactory, but that wasn't God's best. God wants to take us up to the highest peak so that we can look out and understand the progression of the will of God. So that we can see the entirety of God's will for ourselves, for our families for our world because from that new vantage point a person is able to see and to map out the progressive revelation of the will of God from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation this person can see the big picture And this is Paul's purpose in writing that they may come to know not only God's perfect will but that they will be able to map out and understand God's will throughout the various dispensations of all of his interactions with mankind. That sounds really important, doesn't it? But what does that mean for the Christian? If I'm a Christian and I'm already doing the perfect will of God, why do I need to understand God's good will? Why do I need to understand God's, God's acceptable will? I'll answer with this, there are a lot of believers who have only a partial understanding of the will of God. I want to go a little further. There are many believers, and there are likely some sitting right here in this church today, that depend partially on the grace of God, and partially on their own innate understanding of what is right and wrong, depending somewhat on grace and somewhat on your works. That kind of believer only experiences a partial sort of liberty. They can't see the big picture. That kind of believer is often frustrated and in fear because of their own legalistic Pharisee within who demands more and more and more, even though God is not calling for more. This kind of person feels like they're never a good enough Christian because their their confidence is not founded completely on the grace of God, but on the grace of God and on their works. Most believers are not resting in the perfect will of God. And it's frustrating when you're not resting in the perfect will of God. Because your own idealism never allows you to feel satisfied with yourself or with your life. You always feel like you could have done better. You always feel like it could have been done better than you did it. Never good enough. You never feel like you're accepted by Jesus Christ just for who you are, always about what you can do. This is the kind of person who is not sold out and sold into the perfect will of God which requires nothing of him, which requires nothing of her but faith alone. Then there is the believer who understands God, God's acceptable will. This is the one who remains true to the law. This is the person who says, like R.C. Sproul used to say, I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't hang with those who do. And they think that God is impressed because of what they don't do. When what they should have been doing was trusting in Jesus Christ by faith alone. That is the only way that you will inherit eternal life. Not by might, not by power, but only by the spirit, only by the grace of God. This is what Paul is going to teach so dramatically in the book of Romans. Paul teaches it so clearly in the book of Romans that the foolish person reads the book of Romans and thinks that what Paul is saying is, as long as I have received Jesus Christ as personal Lord and Savior, it doesn't matter what I do in my personal life. I can do whatever I want to do. Because it's all about grace It's all about faith It has nothing to do with the way I live There are Christians like that you know There are Christians who are banking On the grace of God to the point where they have become Proud and arrogant And they believe they have a place In the kingdom of God no matter what they do And that's such a great mistake And then this is the, This is where the tension comes in In the book of Romans There's this constant tension in the book of Romans Between faith works between grace and the law there is this constant tension where one minute it sounds like Paul the apostle is saying you can go out and do whatever you want as long as you're saved as long as you have the grace of God go out and do whatever you like to do and sometimes he carries that argument for a long time and if you don't read the whole book you'll leave with the impression oh I'm, I'm saved doesn't matter once saved always saved But if you continue to read after a while, he comes right back around and he says, no, you got to live right. Wait a minute, Paul, you just said it's not about the law. You just said, what are you saying? There's this constant tension, isn't there? Let me tell you something though. If you'll be a child of God, if you walk close to the bosom of Jesus Christ, you will become comfortable or at least you'll become very familiar with the uncertainty that exists in the spirit, with the tentativeness of every one of your opinions. The minute you start leaning too hard on grace, God comes back and says, go to work. The minute you start working too hard, God comes back and says, son, it's about my grace. Which one is it? It's both. (laughs) That's the beauty of salvation. That is the mystery of godliness. How can I say it more plainly? There is no set standard or set rule with God. God is spirit. God is free to do and to choose and to judge however he wills. You can't lock him into, and this is something that my, my, my theological brothers and sisters probably hate to hear, you can't lock God into any theological position. He breaks out when he wants to. The moment you think you have it down pat and it's all grace alone and faith alone, God comes back and says you better go to work or you're not gonna make it. Wait a minute, the Bible says, well turn to Jesus saying that the the women who went out with no candles in the middle of the night, they got left behind. Did you read that one? which one is it? It's both. (laughs) It's both. That's what Paul argues in this book. It's both. That's what James argues when he says, show me your faith without your works. It's both, man. (laughs) Don't you get it? That's what Paul is going to argue in this book. What I love about the book of Romans, though, is that by the time you're finished reading it, you come to understand that it's really only about the love of God and your love for God. That's all it's about. Your love for God and God's love for you is all the gospel is really about. It took me years to come to that conclusion. It took me years to come to understand that. I used to argue with the uh, Arminians, those people who believe that you can lose your salvation. I used to get into all kinds of ridiculous arguments with them about that. And one day while reading the book of Romans, I came to understand, reading this particular text, I came to understand, listen, there are different horizons in the kingdom of God. Just because a person is on the horizon where they believe they can lose their salvation, it doesn't mean they're not saved. That doesn't mean that at all. They don't believe correctly. They're wrong. They don't believe correctly. You can't be, yes, you can. They're just on a different horizon. They just see things differently. They understand the acceptable will of God, and that's okay. Okay. It's no problem to God if you come to heaven, if you did your very best and you you scratched and you worked as hard as you could, do everything perfectly, you can still make it to heaven like that. You're just gonna have a miserable life down here because you're going to work yourself to death trying to please a God who is already pleased because he's pleased with his own son, Jesus Christ who lives in you and he will never be pleased with you apart from Christ. You're just going to have a a suffering salvation. You're never going to experience the freedom of Jesus Christ because you're going to be beating yourself up all the time because you didn't obey every jot and every tittle. Yeah, yeah, that's going to be your future. Do you want to be that kind? There are Christians in this room right now who are living their lives in that very way. Always repenting, even when they haven't sinned. Always repenting always feeling guilty, always feeling less than. And God is saying, don't you understand that my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weaknesses. You are accepted in the beloved, Eric. You don't have to work so hard. And Eric says, thank you, Jesus. I'm going to sit down for a while. You sit down for 30 days and God, get up, go to work. What are you doing, Eric? You told me to sit down. Go do some work. Which one? Do you want me to sit do you want me to work? I want you to do whatever I am calling you to do. This is not a book of rules, this is a book of relationship. (laughs) Ah, I love it, I love it man. Where am I at In 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 my sermon here? You guys got me off track. Abstaining from sin. As important as abstaining from sin is, abstaining from sin is not God's first priority for you. Oh, I get put a lot of churches saying something like that. Abstaining from sin is not God's top priority for you. Did you know that? God's first priority and God's only priority for us Is that we bow the knee to the lordship of Jesus Christ in faith. That we lay down our lives for him. That we trust in Jesus Christ with all of our hearts, minds, souls, and spirits. And finally, that we allow Jesus Christ to live his life in and through us. Pause right there for a minute. Because this is what I'm saying. Does God want you not to sin? Yes, God wants you not to sin. Of course God doesn't want you sinning. That's a bad thing. God doesn't want you sinning. Well, then God expects me to do right. No, God doesn't expect you to do anything except one thing. Submit to the life of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? That means deny yourself and allow Jesus Christ to live his life in and through you. That's all you have to do. That's all you can do. And guess what happens? You stop sinning. That wasn't the goal. That was just an outcome of you allowing Jesus Christ to live His life through you, because Jesus doesn't sin. And so, if Jesus Christ is living in and through you, then you won't sin naturally. Well, that wasn't the goal. <laughs> the goal was to allow Jesus Christ to live in you. That is the objective of the. Be- that is the only objective of the believer. Is to allow Jesus to live in and through you. They say to Jesus, what work must we do to inherit eternal life? What do we have to do, Jesus, to inherit eternal life? What did Jesus say? Who knows what Jesus said? Jesus said, this is the work, that you believe on God the Father, that you believe in Jesus Christ, whom the Father has sent. That's the work. That is the work. The faith is the work. actions and your attitudes have nothing to do with this. The faith is the work. When you fully trust Jesus Christ with your life, when you give up your ideas for your own life and trust God for his vision for your life, when you give your life over to Jesus, you have done the work. Then like Paul the Apostle, you can say, it is not I. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. But it's not me that you're looking at. It's not me that you're looking at. It's Jesus Christ living in me. That's the work. If the Romans can receive this message, if you all can receive this message, what you'll come to find is that this walk of salvation is just as easy as Jesus described it. The only reason the walk with Jesus Christ is difficult is because you have a partial belief in the grace of God and part of your confidence and dependence is in your own works. And Paul says you're not going to have the best Christian life if you view it from that horizon. You need to come up higher to see the complete will of God, to understand the complete story of salvation. Sinless living is only a byproduct of a life that has been yielded to Jesus Christ. I used to teach a uh, recovery program. People had a hard time believing that. They wanted to follow the steps and they wanted to practice this and practice that. I was, I'll tell you what you practice through the week. You alcoholic, I'll tell you what you practice through the week. Practice through the week, 15 minutes in the morning, getting up and sitting by yourself and giving yourself over to the will of God. Practice that. How am I going to stop drinking from the... You keep practicing that. You keep submitting to Jesus Christ like that. After a while, Jesus Christ Christ is going to abide in you so much to the point that you are going to decrease, Christ is going to increase, and alcoholism will go away because Jesus is not an alcoholic. I've seen several people delivered just like that by faith. This is the perfect will of God. Paul says, I have been re-horizoned. I have come out of lip of legalism, of depending on my own works for salvation. I have been re-horizoned. I have been given a bigger view. I have been set apart for the gospel of God. I have been set apart and now I can see and proclaim the good news of God that God sent his son Jesus Christ into the world to save sinners. This is the gospel of God. This is a gospel of love, a gospel of rescue. A gospel of deliverance, a gospel of freedom. Freedom from sin, freedom from the law, freedom from the flesh. Hmm. Freedom through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. I have been rehorizoned to understand the entire gospel message from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation. This is good news. That God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that if you will only believe in him, you shall have eternal life. Uh, That we are saved not by our own works, not by our own strength, but we are saved because God has given us the free gift of Jesus Christ our Lord. (laughs) And if any person receives eternal life, it will be solely because she has placed her life and her trust in Christ. Jesus Christ alone then is the perfect will of God. Jesus Christ alone then is the ultimate vision of God for all mankind. Jesus Christ alone. Verse 2 says that this is good news. That God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Three points here. The first one, that the gospel was promised beforehand. Before Jesus ever came into the world, the gospel was being promised. That the gospel was promised and proclaimed, even starting in the Garden of Eden. We all know that, that the first gospel message was preached in the Garden of Eden. Did you know that? I got my Moody students here today, so I'm going to ask them what scripture that is. I didn't hear them, but I'm sure they're getting their Bibles up. What scripture is that? First gospel message to be preached. (laughs) Tell you something more funny about the first gospel message that was preached. The first gospel message that was preached was not preached to humans, the first gospel message that was preached was preached to the devil. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I will make enemies of you and the woman. And of your offspring and her descendant. Her descendant shall bruise you on your head, and you shall bruise him on his heel. This speaks of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. This speaks of the fact that Jesus Christ has destroyed all of the works of the devil, and God said it in the Garden of Eden. He prophesied this beforehand. You think you won, devil. <laughs> you haven't won anything. I am going to make enmity between you and the woman and her descendant and your descendant and he is going to crush your head. You wait and see this. The Bible says for this cause Jesus Christ came into the world that he might destroy the works of Satan. That's why he came. Jesus didn't come to judge you. He came to rescue you. He came to judge Satan. Well then if he came to judge Satan, then why are we judged then? Why is the sinner judge if he came to judge Satan? Because Satan is in the sinner and the sinner refuses to evict him. I don't want to go too far with that, but this is the book of Romans. I'm just giving you an overview of what, what Paul says here. Paul says Jesus Christ came into the world to destroy Satan wherever he finds him. And so he has done the work of separating you, of giving you an opportunity to be separated from Satan. But if he comes and Satan is with you, then you have a problem, because he's going to, and and this is the cynicism of Satan. This is the cynicism of the devil. He's on the run from God, and God is judging him everywhere he goes, and Satan comes up with this masterful scheme. Gotta say, it was pretty clever. He said, you know what? If I get within human beings, he can't destroy me then, because he's not gonna destroy his own. And so he gets in men. And so now God can't just outright judge him because to judge him, he has to judge me. <laughs> That's pretty clever, isn't it? That's cynical. And so God watches his, his creation walk around doing whatever they want, saying whatever they want, acting how, and his grace says, you know what? I really want to slap you, devil. Man, but you're in Calvin. The day is going to come where Calvin's going to get delivered from you. And when I catch you out there by yourself, you're in a whole lot of trouble. And Jesus comes into the world and says, I didn't come to judge you. I came to destroy the works of the devil. I don't have a problem with you. Dan, I don't have a problem with you. Tahira, I don't have a problem with God doesn't have a problem with you. But, but if I'm a sinner, he has a problem. No, God really doesn't have a problem with a sinner. God is looking for the devil. That is his arch enemy. People are not God's archenemy. Humans are not God's enemies. Sin is God's enemy. Satan is God's enemy. And that's who he came to judge. It just so happens that sin is in our DNA. And so he can't judge sin without judging us. And so through Jesus Christ, he separates me from my sin. So that now he can target sin all by himself and I can be saved. Oh, the depths of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. His ways are past finding out. This is the mystery of godliness. This is what Paul is going to teach in the book of Romans. So I'm not making this stuff up. I'm going to take you there after a while. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel this promise is from god to the devil you're not going to get away with this you're going to be judged one day that's a promise that is a direct threat that is a direct warning from god to the devil and as we read the gospels we come to know the man who god sent to accomplish that very thing the man who had been promised beforehand first by god himself then by god's prophets Throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, you get intimations of Jesus Christ again and again as prophet after prophet is allowed to peer into the distant future and see the Son of Man sitting high above the heavens, clothed with majesty, like like, like, what's his name, we just got finished studying him, Ezekiel, like Ezekiel saw him, the Son of Man, clothed in majesty. Ezekiel didn't know exactly what he was looking at, but he was looking at Jesus Christ. He didn't know when this was going to come to pass, but he prophesied it beforehand by the Spirit of God that the Son of Man is going to come and destroy the works of the adversary and set God's people free. That's the promise. Promise beforehand, written down in the Holy Scripture. We don't need to be reminded of this, I remind us anyway that the scripture is holy. That all scripture is inspired by God. That scripture is not the contrivance of men, but Paul says that the scriptures are holy. God prophesied beforehand in the holy scriptures What did he prophesy? He prophesied concerning his son, verse three. Concerning his son. Scripture is inspired by God. God is the author of all scripture and all of scripture is about Jesus Christ. All scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, all scripture is about Jesus Christ. Not so much about living right. Not so much about doing good. That's not what Scripture is about. All Scripture points to Jesus Christ. That is its only purpose. It's all about Jesus. Genesis is about Jesus. Exodus is about Jesus. Ruth is about Jesus. Habakkuk is about Jesus. Proverbs is about Jesus. Job is about the entirety of the Holy Scriptures is all about Jesus. And Paul is going to demonstrate this to us over and over again in this book as he exposits the Old Testament. The book of Hebrews does a great job of it as well, but to exposit the Old Testament, to show Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, prophesied beforehand, written down in scripture. Scripture is all about Jesus who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. And so Christmas time is coming. You guys know I love the Advent season, my favorite time of every year. Christmas time is the season where we take our time to reflect more deeply upon the birth of Jesus Christ and what it means for all of mankind. And I've been saying this for years, I'm gonna repeat it again today, and I really believe this to be the truth. That in the church, we focus much more on the deity of Jesus than we do on the humanity of Jesus Christ. And I believe, brothers and sisters, that we do that to our own hurt. We focus much more on the deity of Jesus than we do on the humanity of Jesus. And in doing this, we lessen the mystery that is Christ. We make him so holy and completely other that we have a hard time relating to him. We have a difficult time being comfortable with Jesus. We make him so much different than ourselves. But Jesus Christ was born just like you, just like me. He was born as a descendant of David. His birth was in keeping with God's promise to King David through the prophet Nathan. In 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 16, he says to David, you, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. This is God's promise to King David concerning Jesus Christ. His throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness, is a scepter of his kingdom. The throne of Jesus Christ is forever and ever. He is forever crowned king of kings and lord of lords, born a descendant of King David, according to the flesh. But then verse 4 says, he was declared the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness. By the resurrection from the dead, fully God, fully man. Born a man declared to be the son of God. He is deity and he is Godhead. He is declared and proven by the historical fact that he raised physically and bodily from the dead. No other man can claim that. Three days in the, two days in the grave. On the third day, he raised physically and bodily from the dead, declaring himself to be the son of the living God, fully God, fully man. And by this sign, by this sign of the resurrection, well, by this sign of Christ's crucifixion, he demonstrates himself to be fully human. He died, humans die. He demonstrated himself to be fully God in that he raised from the dead he snatched life from death. He is fully God. And so, as we traverse this book of Romans, it should be a very interesting time for you and for me as our faith is challenged, as we are rehorizoned and reoriented to the gospel message. It's never a bad thing to study, the gospel message I have been preaching for over 25 years and I can say of a truth that there is still more to learn about my salvation there is still more to learn about my Savior and Lord Jesus Christ there is still more to be learned and when we approach this book of Romans and put down our theological positions because I'm gonna say some things hint hint I'm gonna say some things over the next couple months That's probably going to make you go home and say, Pastor, got it all wrong. That can't be right. That can't be right. But I'm going to read the text, and we're going to exposit the text together over probably the next two years. So that we can have a thorough understanding of our salvation. And sometimes, you guys know me by now, sometimes I'm going to be intentional to provoke you. Please don't leave the church because you get provoked. I'm going to provoke you. We start talking about predestination, all these things. I'm going to provoke some people. But if you just hold on, you'll see your position come around because it's an interesting thing. One moment Paul is like he's firm in this position and the next minute Paul changes course and goes a different direction. It's amazing how he does it. It's amazing. And it's all there in the text. That's why you have so many different denominations. Because somebody reads one text one way and comes to the conclusion it is this and it must be this and I must be right and this is the only way and the other person, no, I read I, I read this. You guys got one of those books at home, those theological books that they have the different positions of theology? Anybody got one of those books? You guys probably got those. I'll, I'll talk to you about it. All these, <laughs> the, 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 these different positions of theology. And what they do is they give you all the scriptures that these people believe that make them believe is this way. Then they give you all the scriptures that say, well, they, these people believe, they believe this way for that reason. And these scriptures, and you read all of them, and you sit and think, wow, but it does say that. I I can see where all three of those are possible but if you say that then now you don't have a position you need to state your position I I choose all three positions can you do that man in the spirit there is no limitation there are no rules yes if the Bible says it, I can believe it however I want But there is a perfect way to believe it, there is a good way to believe it, and there is an acceptable way to believe it. If I believe the word of God in the most perfect way, I will have the most perfect experience of my salvation. That's what we desire, is to understand the text perfectly. Will we? Probably not, because I don't. But we're going to come as close as we can to understand this mystery of godliness together. I hope you're excited about it. I'm excited to teach it to you, and, and, and I'm nervous at the same time because it is a challenging book, but I hope you guys stay with me for the whole thing and enjoy it, and, and, kind, and kind of soak in, soak in a new perspective of your salvation, and allow the liberty that Paul the Apostle describes, I'm so glad to see you, and describe, this, describe the liberty that we have in Christ Jesus, and experience that liberty more in our own lives. That's the goal. That's the aim of the book of Romans. Let's pray. Father God, I am 55 years old. And you know that as we get older, our understanding becomes more hardened and our positions become more fossilized. My prayer for myself and for all of those who hear these messages, I pray, is that you would soften our hearts, that you would cause us to move away from the cliffs of our theological positions and to hear your gospel message anew, that we would be re-horizoned. That through this series, we will be brought into a broader place theologically, a broader place spiritually, a broader place relationally, that you will cause us to see and to understand your will more perfectly so that we can benefit from this inheritance that we have been given through the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There are some of us here today who are not enjoying our salvation, constantly haunted and taunted by our own flesh, by our own conscience, never able to rest and relax in you. I pray for them that the message of grace would touch their hearts as it goes forward, that they will find freedom and rest in you, that they will come to trust you more deeply, to depend on your grace more than ever before, that faith might be strengthened, that understanding might be sharpened, and that Jesus Christ will get all the glory. It's in his name we pray.